You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And I hope you all remain safe and healthy, and depending on where you live, warm. It is one degree Fahrenheit here in central Illinois as I record this, and it looks like we've got more days of this bitter weather ahead. Like the radio guy in Groundhog Day says, it's cold outside. Uh, There will be no salamanders or frogs in my neck of the woods for a while yet. They're all underground, sleeping, and probably frozen solid. And before we proceed, I want to wish my wife, Nell, a happy Valentine's Day. And I'm also very happy for her because she got both of her jabs, which means she was able to return to the clinic where she works after 11 months of working at home with me. Uh, which is quite a feat, folks, and I thank her for her patience and forbearance. I do kind of miss having her around, but uh, on the flip side, I got my office back. So that means no more conversations around the washing machine, since I'm able to record shows and these intros from my warm office. I do not miss the basement. It is chilly down there right now. And once again, I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters. It takes a group effort to support any entertainment channel, and I appreciate that you folks all get that. And uh, if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling, go to patreon.com slash so much pingle, and so much pingle is all one word. And here's an SMP shout out to Paul Eric Backland for his kind comments about the show music. Uh, You really get me, man. I appreciate that. Okay, so yesterday was the joint online meeting of the Southwest Park and Colorado Park organizations. And just a reminder that Park is P-A-R-C and stands for Partners in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation. I've been to park meetings in the past, and I was honored to be invited to give a lightning talk that featured the HerpMapper project, which I'm involved with, and the show. So I got to do a nice shout out for the show. Thanks to the park folks for the invite, and it was good to see and hear from some of the folks who are friends of the show and and some of the folks who have been on the show, like uh, Mr. Andrew Dubois and Hunter Johnson and Josh Wallace uh, and Rob Kreutzer and the turtle guy, Carl Franklin, and maybe a couple other, which I've forgotten, uh, and perhaps some future guests on this show. So hint, hint. And uh, Andrew, shout out to you and all of the folks uh, for putting together an excellent uh, presentation. There's always the unsung heroes behind the scenes who make these events successful. Thank you very much. And so there were a great many talks uh, that centered around herp conservation. And I got to tell you, whether you realize it or not, that there are a lot of committed people who are working their tails off to keep common species common and to restore habitat, and in some cases to restore herbs to places where they used to be. Uh, and, and of course, there's, people are also working to eradicate introduced species. And uh, I know everyone is familiar with the, the epic struggle with 
pythons in the Everglades. It gets a lot of press. But uh, you know what else is hard? Getting rid of bullfrogs from places where they don't belong. Uh, bullfrogs are extremely difficult. And you know all the methods you're running through your head right now for getting rid of them. They're either incredibly labor-intensive or they don't work. Uh, so much respect to the folks engaged in those efforts. Uh, it's amazing how many talks were involved on efforts to eradicate bullfrogs from western parts of the country where they do not belong. And one last thing before I move on. Uh, one of the cool things about park is that anyone can participate. You can attend park meetings and you can talk to the folks involved in amphibian and reptile conservation. And you can get involved or at the very least you'll get a better picture of what's going on. Uh, so I will put some links for Park in the show notes. Now let's get to this week's guest. And once again, we find ourselves in Australia. Jody Rowley is a conservation biologist with the Australian Museum in Sydney, and her specialty is frogs. So I followed Jody on social media for some time, and I've always appreciated her passion and enthusiasm for amphibians. And so I knew even before this show kicked off that I wanted to talk to her. She's been involved with field research in Australia, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, and some other places. And she's also involved with the Australian Frog ID Project. And we're going to cover all of that and more. So let's get to my conversation with Jody Rowley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. And today we are speaking with Jody Rowley from Sydney, Australia. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate you coming on. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. And uh, I would like you to start off by telling uh, our listening, listeners a little bit about yourself. I know you're, uh, you're at the Australian Museum. Uh, tell us what you do there. I'm the Curator of Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Biology, and I'm a joint appointment between the Australian Museum and the University of New South Wales in Sydney, which is kind of a fantastic deal. So I spend most of my time at the Australian Museum, also responsible for the amazing collections that we have here of amphibian and amphibians and reptiles. Uh, but also an amazing team of biologists that are working to help frogs uh, and reptiles in Australia and, and across the world, um, trying to do everything we can to, to help understand and conserve them, as well as doing some teaching. And I've got a bunch of students here working on the same kind of thing. So I, I have um, a, a pretty awesome job. I'm very lucky. I think so. And you're very busy, I would imagine, right? I I am. Um, you know, they say it's a blessing and a curse when you work on something that you're passionate about. It's um, it's pretty much what I do when I'm awake. <laughs> I understand. I just got back from a frogging trip to Alabama, and uh, this is my jam here talking to somebody about uh, frogs. So, of course, it was a, it's a lot chillier here. It's about let's see, about one C uh, in oh. Celsius. <laughs> Yeah, so it was pretty chilly out there, and uh, but we did see some, did see and hear some some nice species of frogs in Alabama. So that made me quite happy. So so now I get to follow that up by talking frogs with you, and I think we're going to go right to the the crux of the matter and talk about a project that you are involved with called Frog ID. Yeah, Can you tell us um, a little bit about that. I'm interested in how Frog ID got started 
and how you, I think this has been going on since 2017. So can you give us a little background on what it is and how it got started? Well, it all came about actually from a conversation with the director and CEO of the Australian Museum, Kim McKay. We were having a little chat and I was kind of telling her, you know, every every frog has a different call and so they're basically yelling out what species they are. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it I was impersonating frogs, which is something that I, I have no shame, <laughs> so I'm willing to do in public. Uh, and she said, well, we should develop something like a, a frog Shazam. And I just kind of laughed and um, if, if people don't know what sh frog sh Shazam is, it's when you hear a song playing on the radio or something, you, it's an app on your phone and you sort of just hit listen or whatever on the app and it tells you what song it is. So it just sort of listens in and identifies the song. Um, yes. And so she was suggesting that it'd be great if we could have something like a frog Shazam. So you hear a frog calling and you you have an app and it sort of automatically identifies uh, the frog. And um, before everyone gets too excited, we don't quite have that yet. Uh, but it did start this journey that went for a couple of years before it was actually launched in, in November 2017. Uh, so it's been running for over three years now. Uh, and it's a national citizen science project based around an app for your phone and the facts that fact that frogs call. So in Australia, we have over 240 species of native frog. Uh, and one of the biggest obstacles to their conservation and frogs generally around the world is that we just don't know that much about them, even their true distributions, where they're breeding, when they're breeding. And so this was, uh, I guess, a, a an attempt to try and gather the information that we need to help better inform frog conservation. Uh, you know, there's only a handful of frog biologists that are able to work and so we can't get the information rapidly enough that we need. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm not an app developer. I knew none of this kind of stuff. I'm a frog, frog obsessed <laughs> conservation biologist. Uh, so it was a fantastic journey that is a large team, mostly at the Australian Museum, but a whole bunch of other partners, including museums around Australia. Uh, and it, the app is not yet automatically identifying frogs. So what people do is they get out there whenever they hear frogs, wherever they hear frogs, they press record for 20 to 60 seconds. Phones have amazing audio sort of capturability. You know, I, I have professional yep. recording equipment. I use it. Um, but the phones aren't that far off. It is, it is kind of amazing. Um, so they record 20 good. to 60 seconds. They really are. Um, and then uh, you can say where it is, a pond. You can match it to the frogs you think it is. It'll bring up the the possible frogs in that area and at that time of year. And then you submit that recording. And, and everything is kind of automatic. So you don't need to bring a GPS with you. You don't need to figure out where you are, the time, the date. Even the location accuracy is submitted with that audio recording. Then, oh, so it uses your phone's native GPS. Yeah, it's actually really good. Um, and and I, I didn't even know they had, I guess, I did know if you think about it, you know, when you're using Google Maps or something, it'll tell you how how sort of sure it is that you are there. It'll have that sort of blue uh, circle around you. So it even tells you how sure it is. And and surprisingly to me initially anyway, you obviously you don't even need mobile reception or cell phone reception to actually have your phone know where it is. Um, so your you phone be, talks to space. It's yeah. creepy. Yeah, you, you can be in the middle of nowhere down a gorge out with no reception and, and record a frog and 
boom, you know, the Frog ID recording is is located right there. So then each call that is submitted uh, is listened to by a team of frog experts here at the Australian Museum, uh, including myself, and identified. So we sometimes it's not a frog, sometimes it's an insect, uh, mostly it's frogs, and, and sometimes up to, I think, a dozen species of frog calling within one recording. And so all of these form a national database of locations of frogs around the country, but also there's these amazing audio recordings recordings that can then be used for research into, for example, discovering new species. Um, so we hear strange frogs, that doesn't sound like another frog, and then, you know, investigating to figure out um, what's going on there. So it's a huge, huge database. We've got over 300,000 records of frogs across Australia uh, in, in just sort of three years, which is... I, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Congratulations. That's that's amazing. And, and I want to, I do want to query you on that success because, uh, uh, as you know, uh, community science or citizen science, whatever you want to call it, is it's sometimes difficult to get people on board. So how did how did your team manage to get so many people involved? I mean, I think if I remember right, you have a couple thousand people who have participated in this project. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, t tens of thousands of people and um, more than 100,000. Oh, okay. I don't know what it is now. I've actually downloaded the app but maybe not taken the next step. So it is also a field guide. Uh, yeah, it's remarkable. Um, you know, entering this project as a, a biologist, I was in for the data. You know, we, we need this information. We need to try and save frogs. But actually over the course of the project, I've realised even though that's, in, it's you know, it is revolutionising the way we understand frogs in Australia. What I've also realised, it, it's kind of changing the way people think or it's increasing awareness of frogs within Australia, which I you know, it's it's definitely not me. It's the whole project. It's all the people behind it. Um, but it's connecting people with nature, which I think is is what we really need. And I guess it turns out that people people care. <laughs> you know that it's not yeah. just us crazies that that are really obsessed and and into these. But there are tons of people around Australia willing to stand in the rain in a swamp. I mean, all of us frog biologists and and reptile biologists have you know we've been out there in some pretty awful field conditions, but you know what, like there are thousands of people out there that will join the fight to help save frogs. Um, you know, they really do yeah. care. And I guess it helps that we make it as easy as possible. You don't have it to do anything but press a button for 20 to 60 seconds. You don't have to ID the frogs yourself. That's one of the obstacles I always face when I try and use like uh, another, another citizen science app. Some of them where like eBird, I don't know what bird that is and I'm too scared to try right. and guess. You know, I know that a couple of main main birds, you know, that most people know. But um, we, we make it as, as easy as possible, um, you know, which – I think helps. And frogs frogs help. They're yelling out what they are. You know, you don't have to get your feet wet. You don't have to get it really anywhere yeah. near them. You just have to hear them. People are recording frogs even. We've had them saying, I'm too lazy to get out of bed, so sorry for the bad quality recording. And there's a frog calling outside their window. So it's it's as easy as possible. Awesome. Well, let me, t let me ask you this. If you get some local person who records frogs, uh, but they want to know what they what they recorded. Is there a, a feedback loop so they can find out what it was that was calling? Yeah. So when we actually, one of the the things is we actually even type comments and things to people. So it's all listened to by at least one person. So when they submit the recording, sometimes people can, they can submit notes and photos. So they might say, oh, I'm not sure why this one started calling now, or, you know, ask us some questions around that as well. Um, but 
uh, regardless, every time they submit a recording, we identify the frogs and it then gets fed back into the app. So when they open up the app, they can see what their frogs are. They can also log into the Frog ID website where they can have a look at the list of all their recordings and they can even download all their recordings for them. So they can see all their data and we're working on improving that even more too. Um, but they also get an email as well that tells them what frog species they recorded. Excellent. Excellent. And that keeps them coming back for more. I hope so. I mean, we do get a lot of people that sort of say, well, I recorded that frog already. You don't want it again, do you? So that's one of the hardest messages. We're like, yes, we want it every ah. night because not only are we trying to map where frogs are and where they're breeding, but we're also trying to understand, for example, how breeding seasons, well, first of all, just what are the breeding seasons of Australia's frogs? Secondly, uh -huh. how do they change? Um, how are they likely to change with weather, climate, climate change, things like that? Um, and so these repeat recordings, um, I mean, they're also helping us understand uh, things like frog accents. So, for example, it's it's pretty, I guess, well known um, that frog calls change from one place to another, just like humans. So, even within one species, right. you know, in, in the north of their range, they sound often slightly different to the south of their range, and, that, and that's just kind of change over space. Uh, but what we found using frog ID calls and an amazing student, Savannah Weaver, she actually looked at a bunch of calls and found they even change over the course of a breeding season. So at the beginning of oh. the, the season, you know, they're slightly different to, to at the end. Um, and so, so do you think they, they warmed up their, their uh, vocal apparatus and that, that changes over time? It's just like you're a singer, right? Your voice changes over a performance. Uh, I yeah. kind of could see that. Yeah, and, and maybe something to do with hormones and things as well. So, like, ah, yeah, they get they okay. get really, like, keen at the best part of their season or something like that. So, yeah, may yeah, maybe their hormones haven't quite got into, kicked into action or something. But, yeah, we know very little about those kind of things. And so Frog ID is just providing clues. Well, this is all fascinating to me because uh, I'm, I'm part of a project called the HurtMapper Project, uh, which is a global tracking projects, very similar to what you're doing, uh, uses your phone's GPS. Uh, the only difference, main difference is that we use uh, photo vouchers instead of audio calls, although we do have an audio call feature, and I have done some, uh, I did some, made some audio call records this weekend, or this past week. So, uh, so it's interesting, the parallels are interesting to me, and the tricks that you're using to, not tricks, but the, the, what you're using to keep people interested and keep the project rolling forward, I think, are interesting to me. I, I notice you give the people feedback, but you also, you also, people can get feedback from if they follow you on Facebook, or, or I think Australian I, uh, Frog ID has its own presence on Facebook and other social media. Yeah, 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 it does. So, so people can follow along with that, and you can keep the buzz going, and you can keep them excited, and, and keep them using the tool, and if, if some problem comes up, you can help them out. You have a a good tool there for getting for your users to get answers right away or or to even just crow about their achievements hey i got this really cool thing i did last night how about that so I, i'm really interested in in what else you're doing i know you also do a lot of appearances uh for frog id you've, you've done some uh other podcasts and you've done some probably some television and some radio and you want to talk about that a little bit yeah, so 
I think part of it is just getting the message out. Uh, if, if, if it was just me and I decided to develop this app by myself, I think probably <laughs> my friends and family would have used it a handful of times and maybe whenever I pestered them. And, right. you know, it would have been fantastic, but it, it wouldn't have been on anything like the scale that Frog ID is. Uh, and so, I mean, this is all, all really the, the result of the Australian Museum being behind me and supporting frogs and Frog ID and believing in the cause and, uh, I guess, putting me out, uh, giving me these opportunities to speak about frogs, which I'm incredibly passionate about. So, in particular, the launch of Frog ID, there was there was news, uh, radio, there was TV, there was all sorts of things. So, essentially, a week where, you know, we tried to get everybody using Frog ID as much as possible. And then every year in November, which is a really good uh, time for frogs along particularly the east coast of Australia, where, where a lot of the people live, uh, we run this Frog ID week, which is a sneaky week because it's actually 10 days. Uh, but we run it and <laughs> and then there's a lot of media again. So, raising the profile of, of Frog ID. Um, we have newsletters that go out every month. And yeah, we have the social media accounts and we give talks to local communities because one of the things as well is the most successful frog ID um, I guess use is particularly in terms of threatened species it has been uh -huh. when the local community use frog ID as a tool so it, it's having people going right I've got this threatened frog that's you know around my town we need to find more about it and so we're going to get together with local community groups maybe local councils and actually sort of really push monitoring that species so using using frog ID to get what they want which then also helps contribute to this national database and I guess that's the other thing um, the fact that it is national also really mm -hmm. helps as well um, and and because you know wherever you are you're going on holiday you're going around the place and you are able to contribute to that. Well, let me ask you too about it's like us, you have problems with a number of species disappearing. Uh, but there's also this concept of keeping common species common and, and knowing where the common species are and checking in on them every once in a while, make sure they're still there and that kind of thing. Is that something that is part of your project as well? Definitely, definitely. And, uh, and, you know, in fact, there's been some sort of anecdotal, one of Australia's most common frogs, I guess, is the green tree frog. And that's commonly kept as a pet ar around the world as well. So also called white's tree frog or the dumpy tree frog, uh, Latoria right. cerulea. Now, this, this species used to be really, really common in Sydney, where I live. And there are records of it being collected, you know, and put into museum collections and that it's been calling around all these suburbs throughout Sydney. And for probably the last decade or so, uh, people that have been interested in frogs have been saying, you know what, like I don't think there's as many green tree frogs around the place. And Frog ID was actually the first time we got enough actual data because a lot of cities is private land and so it's often very very hard to survey and know what frogs are actually calling around there so one of the best ways is for people to just be recording whatever's in their backyard and so we got this amazing data set across Sydney and we did realize yep okay they're getting heaps of other frogs so there's really good survey effort but we're getting essentially no green tree frogs from most of the suburbs in Sydney and they're only just hanging around on the edge so that was the first information we found something that you might think was incredibly common and did used to be common and it's still common throughout much of its range, but has actually disappeared from Sydney. So then we can try and figure out, okay, why and what do we need mm -hmm. to do? Right. Excellent. So you're already data mining Frog ID. We, we are. So that's one of the other things I think is trying to prove that it is scientifically useful. Frog ID is a citizen science project. I actually really like this, the term community science. That's much better, I, I think. Yeah. Um, 
and I, and I don't use that as I'm going to have to take that on. Um, I've been learning. I've been learning to adopt that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I much I much prefer it. Uh, and so there is this, I guess snobbiness sometimes within the scientific community or wariness of citizen science. And, and yes, it does have biases. For example, you get most records from where the people are because it's people using the app. You know, it's not as good for the most part in remote areas. But the fact that, that Frog ID and other community science projects uh, can have such a valuable contribution to make. And I think it took a couple of years really for Frog ID to actually get some uh, I guess, credit um, and for all these amazing recordings. So we've managed to publish, I think, seven um, or so scientific papers using the data to Frog ID to show how useful it is. And we've got uh, three PhD students here working on, on the data and we've got people now across Australia requesting to use the data in their research as well. Um, and I think potentially the pivotal moment may have been during the bushfires, the black summer bushfires of last spring and summer in Australia, so just over a year ago, uh, when immediately after the fires, when we've been terrified about how our biodiversity was going to be coping, uh, we realised that actually Frog ID was the best data we had on recent locations of Australia's wow. frogs. And then, of course, in the last year, uh, understanding how they're they're coping with those fires as well, and and after immediately after the fires, it was very difficult for scientists to get out into the field. Uh, it was dangerous uh, for to travel, and then COVID hit, and so it was really the first three, well, the first many months after the fires, scientists essentially couldn't get out there. But local communities were still living in these places and local communities still mm -hmm. had their phones and the Frog IT app. And so we got thousands of recordings from these burnt areas and it gave us an amazing window into how frogs are doing. And so I think it's a slowly changing game where sort of we're realising actually that we need this partnership between communities and yeah. scientists in order to gather the data rapidly and help save our biodiversity so that that was kind of a surprise i suppose um you, you don't always know how where this is going to take you when you develop these things you have pretty set ideas about the foundation but then then you have big fires and then you realize oh my gosh how are we ever gonna we can never not have this tool now because it's 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 such a it's such a useful element to, to add to whatever existing research and conservation efforts you have you you have this community science effort where people roll over in bed to stick the phone out the window <laughs> and, and get the frogs. So are there other surprises that have come out of this? As far as your concerns, things where you went, wow, this is, uh, this is maybe it's uh, maybe it's in terms of biodiversity or maybe it's just in terms of how the app is used or. Well, I don't think I ever actually thought we'd be getting this much data. I think that's surprising and it is increasing. So the first two years, uh, it, we, we got um, 100,000 records of frogs. And then within like less than a year, we, we got reached sort of 200,000. Anyway, so, you know, it's it's kind of exponential. And this last season where we've had a slightly wetter summer, we've been getting, you know, a, a, an insane number of calls, but it's absolutely fantastic. So the volume of data and also the coverage of the data across Australia uh, has has been remarkable. I think it's, it's also become, I guess, surprising to me how little we knew about the true distribution 
of frogs ah. in Australia. There are large parts of Australia that are quite remote and frogs are really tricky to survey, especially in the drier parts of the country. If you want to go out there, you know, by the time it rained and, and I got out there, if I needed to survey a frog, the frogs would be popped up, bred and gone back down underground already. You know, it's, it's very right. difficult to actually detect frogs most of the time. Um, and so, for example, we've been getting people living on remote stations that just record frogs while they're out working or, you know, while they're near their beer fridge. And and we're getting, you know, 100-kilometre range extensions on a relatively regular oh, wow. basis for frogs because the edges of their distribution when they start to go into kind of remote areas are just really poorly known. Uh, and so it is really game-changing. And so with the Frog ID data that we have, even simple things like figuring out when frogs' breeding seasons are, which is, of course, going to help inform uh, when people survey for frogs, you know, that you can't just survey at any time, that there are times that you should be surveying if you want to detect them. Uh, and and actually reworking the maps for the distributions of frogs in Australia, as well as helping uh, discover new species and, and describe new species as well. So we're getting calls starting to get incorporated into uh, species descriptions from Frog, Frog ID and, and helping understand the distributions of these new species as well. Very good. Very good. So there's just all kinds of things happening on on all fronts with this project. Uh, and it seems you, you've documented a couple hundred species, but not quite all of the species in Australia yet. Is that true? No, we we have documented 199, which is so tantalizingly uh -oh. close to 200. <laughs> um, but there are about 241 or so species in, in Australia. Okay. So uh, some of the species that we haven't detected, they're only in like a really remote mountaintop in in a sort of um, far away parts of, of um Australia from the cities. Uh, others are from really remote and dry places where they might not, frogs might not even call for, except for a couple of days every few years even. Um, and there is a handful of others that have actually never been heard. So we, we don't actually know oh, what wow. their calls are yet. So it's, it's kind of interesting if we receive a call uh, that sounds a little bit different and, and you know, we're, we're really keeping our ear out for some of these species that actually have no records of their calls. Um, so that will, that will be See. excellent and of course there's some frogs that are extinct or feared extinct and oh, so we haven't yeah. received their records yet well hopefully hopefully you might turn up a couple that you i mean that's happened before right Definitely. That's one of the things we're hoping, you know, we're hoping to hear the call of the, for example, gastric brooding frogs. There's two species of amazing frog uh, from from Queensland uh, that were, we actually have the calls on the app, which is incredibly haunting. So we managed to get uh, these recordings from uh, biologists across Australia prior to releasing the app so that we mm -hmm. could have the calls in there. And, and one of the things that I guess uh, I feel is incredibly powerful and saddening is is to actually hear the call of a species that we will potentially never ever get to hear it at all again. Now I'm really hoping we do get to hear those calls one day that we listen to a frog ID recording and someone who perhaps they might be a birder, they might just be out on a hike and they make a significant discovery like this. And and I guess that's one of the things that's really exciting about frog ID is that with pretty little effort that there is a chance that people just, you know, w walking out there in in the wild or even in their backyard could discover a new species, right. rediscover extinct species and, and make important advances. I mean, there's a critic 
critically endangered frog, um, the Coranda tree frog in North Queensland. And mm -hmm. Frog ID has been used to actually discover, extend the known range of that species into a completely different stream as well. It has a very small, oh, wow. uh, very small known um, area that it occurs in. And we were really excited when we found it in a completely different stream, sort of just uh, I guess where they they didn't quite expect that it would occur as well, which is really exciting. So real important data is yeah. being gathered all the time. Well, that informs your conservation plan for that frog moving forward. And it's always better to have multiple locations for any any frog that's in trouble. So that sounds like a a, a great accomplishment. Yeah, we're a lot of really exciting things. Uh, so obviously, a lot of it's more incremental and it's sort of little changes in our understanding of frogs all the time, but occasionally we do have these these really fantastic, under, you know, leaps, <laughs> uh, pun intended, in, in frog conservation <laughs> and our understanding of them, so range extensions and, and mm -hmm. things like that. Well, tell me a little bit about who's using the app. I mean, is it across the spectrum of, of Australians? Uh, it, kids? It is. Adults? Yeah, um, so, I mean, we, we don't get to know everyone. Certainly there are uh -huh. some super power users, some, some people that have recorded thousands of frogs, whether that's just in their backyard or, you know, it's across Australia. So some amazing people. And I, I, as far as I can tell, they span the full sort of breadth of, of um, the community. Men, women, um, grandparents, you know, teenagers. Uh, you do get to hear a lot of children because it is audio recording. Um, I think it's quite <laughs> hard to keep kids from making any kind of excited noise. And that's fantastic, you know, when, you, when you're recording frog calls. So, so I certainly think it is helping kids as well connect to nature and frogs. Well, you and I understand the draw of being out maybe ankle deep in some puddle and hearing frogs call at night, and it's just this, for us, it's this thing that we love and we, we just want to keep it going. But I, I'm thinking about all the people that experience that for the first time and feel the same way and, and get, you know, they get hooked on it and they want to keep doing it. And, and I'm sure you get some of that too. People that just, they never knew uh, that they, this would be something that they were fascinated by or something that they, they love. Yeah, that's uh, some of the feedback actually brings me to tears from people. You know, people saying that they were an 11 hour car trip and a thunderstorm hit. And before that, they never would have even thought about doing something like this, but they pulled over on the side of the road and they got out and they recorded frogs. We've got people living in remote places that drive, you know, at night on purpose to go to town so that they can stop and just stick the phone out the window and record frogs along drainage awesome. lines by the side of the road in areas that have never, ever had frogs recorded before. And we get an amazing number of frog records from places where there are no record, scientific records of frogs for, you know, 10, 100, you know, a, a huge um, number of kilometres as well. So they're truly putting frogs on the map and and a lot of people saying they never even thought of frogs you know they they probably heard them but they didn't connect the noise that you know to, to actually frogs so it, it is amazing to be part of something that actually is connecting people to frogs and I think it is all about having that opportunity to connect because I 
didn't want to be a frog biologist. I didn't love frogs until I was 18. And it was more or less a chance encounter with frogs that made me fall in love with them. But I could have easily lived my life and fallen in love with something else, never realized <laughs> how amazing frogs were. And I I think it would, that there's no chance that, you know, my, my life would have been worse without frogs. Um, you know, so I, I think, it, you know, it's, it's just so lucky that I had that encounter. And so giving other people the opportunity to realize what amazing biodiversity, including frogs, that they have on their doorstep or when they go camping or, you know, this amazing, these amazing creatures that we have a duty of care for. And so without having that little connection, um, it, it's, it's not possible for people to really care as much about the things that we all need to fight to save. Well, that you, you get a connection there, right? Um, you become connected in a way that is difficult to lose. You never look at the, at the earth, the land, your, your, your garden. You never look at your neighborhood, whatever. You don't look at those things the same anymore. I certainly hope so. It, certainly that was the case for me. Interesting that you, you're kind of a late bloomer when it comes to frogs. I, I am. Um, yeah, I mean, I did I did remember looking at tadpoles as a kid, but my parents were kind of city people. And I think that's one of the issues we face is that kind of disconnection with nature, seeing it on television sometimes and thinking of it maybe as kind of like a, the other. You know, that's when you go into a rainforest. Yeah. That's when you go somewhere really remote and not realising that, you know, I, I took my dad for a walk not, you know, a few years ago uh, in a little patch of, of bushland, a little bit of forest near my place, and he didn't realise that this little noise that was was calling was some a red crown toadlet, which is an amazing tiny little frog, mm. about half an inch, a blackish colour with a little red crown and a little red dot on its back, and that they were chirping all day in the rain. And I, I peeled up the leaf litter and let my dad see these frogs, and he just started crying because he had no idea that we had something so beautiful, so amazing, so precious, and also threatened right literally at, at our doorstep. And wow. and so there was people walking their dogs and jogging and running past that have absolutely no idea that there are these precious little animals that, you know, we're impacting on a daily basis uh, yeah. right under their feet. So it is all about that connection, you know, and having the yeah. opportunity to, to connect again because I mean I think it's it's good for our own health and mental health as as well as you know forming that that connection with nature so that we will will help to to do what we can and care about it yeah and it probably gave your it probably give your dad some insight into what you're all about too right <laughs> <laughs> I, like, oh I think gosh. so yeah very cool um as far as this project goes for the future I mean are you looking at world domination or or what's you have big plans for this you know more bells and whistles or uh, what, what's, what's the future look like for Frog ID? Well, we're just trying to get through the volume of calls that we're getting at the moment so that we can let people know what frogs they have. Certainly. Oh, let me ask you about that before we move forward. Mm -hmm. Who listens? How many? Uh, we've got about a dozen people in wow. the team that okay. listen to frog calls, not full time, but sort of as needed. In in the winter months, it tends to get a little quieter as kind of half of Australia, the northern half, the monsoon season finishes and it becomes the dry season. So they kind of drop off a, a little bit. Um, but yeah, there's there's a, a quite a few of us uh, listening okay. to the frog calls. We have a bit of a backlog because we had a little break over Christmas and the New Year. So we're desperately trying to listen to the frogs now. Uh, and and I guess in making improvements to Frog ID, you know, definitely in the future, thinking thinking about potentially how it might be used in other countries, uh, also incorporating things like machine learning or artificial intelligence yeah. into it as well. 
Yeah. So eventually you point your phone and the ID pops up, right? You get shazammed. Yeah. So, so one day, one day, um, you know, it certainly could take maybe the, the common species off us. Um, it, but yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a challenge. And that, that, that also would potentially remove, I guess, the connection that, that people have with the scientists that are listening to the frog calls. So that, that is something that you sort of think about, obviously, um, you know, people being able to answer questions and that sort of feedback. And, and one of the things we get people telling us is that having that connection and that, you know, real person listening to the frog calls and giving them feedback is really important to them. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. And Perhaps that's more important than having some automatic something, some AI automatic automatically tell you what the frog is. Maybe that's something to preserve. That's a good point. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And the, I mean, the other thing we would really like as well, in in terms of getting people more involved, is and and we are work, working on on the idea is is public validation. So like iNaturalist, where uh, people can come and listen and and identify the calls themselves, and that would help, I guess, expand the project uh, out um, to for people that maybe can't go out and listen to frogs and record frogs. And it is an amazing privilege to be able to listen to frogs from across Australia, uh, and I guess. We, we we'll just be making sure that 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 is it maintains the the accuracy of the project because that is one of the things that is I guess um, that that we really appreciate from Frog ID is that it is expert validated. Yeah, very good. Um, and I'm just I'm just uh, fascinated to hear about this because it's just I you know this is some something that I you know, community science uh, and herp identification is something I've been involved with for quite a while now. One of the things we do with HerpMapper is we, we established, uh, and I learned this from my job back when I was in, in, uh, in the IT world, and we uh, set up a badging system, a virtual badging system. So if you get a, put 500 species in HerpMapper, you get a, a little virtual badge in, in your profile, and, and another one when you get to 1,000, and, and then the badges just get more and more you know, flamboyant as you, you climb up towards, you know, herp godhood up at the top, you know, and uh, that, that has proven to be quite effective for, you know, because people, you know, when they have 199, as you, like you, like you're at right now, they want to get that, that next species so that they can get their next badge. It's just, just amazing how, how people respond to that kind of thing. Don't know if you thought of, of anything like that, but, uh, we find that yeah, kind of effective. Yeah, we, we, we have, and that's also something that we're, we're keen on doing in the future. At the moment, we have a leaderboard, and uh, so ah. we have a, a leaderboard for uh, all uh, the groups and people for, for all, all time of Frog ID, and we also have sort of every Frog ID week, we, we have a bit of a leaderboard as well nice. going, and it's kind of remarkable how, how many recordings people can do and in a short amount of time and, and get so much amazing information on frogs. Do you want to do you want to give a shout out to anybody on your leaderboard? Is there somebody that's just blowing everybody away? Oh, we've got it. We've got a, f- a few a few people. Uh, so definitely, um, Brian um, the Central Coast just won the sort of Frog ID Week with thousands of recordings in ten or wow. thousands of records of frogs in in ten days, which is pretty pretty amazing. Um, or at least hundreds. Uh, he's definitely got thousands on on the board across the, the uh-huh. three years, and and we've had uh, for a long time Matt in in the NT, who uh, he is, I guess, slightly handicapped in that he every 
uh, dry season, he's not able to record any frogs. So it's kind of a disadvantage. Uh, but he goes crazy and just gets an amazing records of all these, you know, quite poorly known frogs from the, from the Northern Territory. There are, but Excellent. there are so many people. I mean, there's people that, that record across Australia, wherever they're going. There's people that are recording really rare and threatened species in the, in the, the sort of um, course of, of their work, maybe maybe they're a, a botanist out there. We've got a lot of people oh. doing field work at the moment after the fires, and I've noticed quite a lot of people that aren't frog biologists that are out there doing survey work are actually using frog ID while they're out there, which I am so grateful for, and getting records of frogs in really remote places. And so, um, you know, and then there's people like my dad who just records a good old striped marsh frog <laughs> every every week or so in the backyard pond and. And that's incredibly valuable too. So now whatever yeah. anyone can do, it's, it's all appreciated. Excellent. Very good. And, and again, uh, when I get to Australia, which I hope is in the next few years, I will download the app. And just in case I hear some frogs calling so that I can participate too. So it sounds like a lot of fun. Ah, fantastic. And you'll definitely hear frogs if you're here. You'll have to come <laughs> at, at a, a time of the year or to a place. I and mean, it depends on, on where you are, but there are frogs calling in Australia across, the, across all the year. And Okay, very good. So I want to switch gears a, a little bit. Uh, well, first, I want to mention to, to our listening audience, I, I, I read this somewhere in, in all of your um, material online about Frog ID, that Frog ID won the Eureka Prize for innovation in citizen science. Can you talk about that just for a minute before we switch gears? Uh, so the Eureka Prizes are kind of like the, the Grammy Awards or, <laughs> or similar, um, the Emmys for, for science in Australia, which is really fantastic. They're actually uh, sort of run by the Australian Museum, which is uh, where I work and where Frog ID is based, but it was an independent judging panel. Um, so it was a really fantastic recognition of, I guess, the the scientific and um, and and popular respect uh, that Frog ID has had uh, in, I guess, be, you know, being a huge citizen science project, uh, being very successful both in terms of the number of records that we're getting and, and also the scientific output. So it was a massive, massive, massive honour. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's it's great to be uh, rewarded for your accomplishments, your team, but it also helps to. It just furthers the project along, right? Because it gets more exposure and more people are interested. I'm sure you saw an uptick after that. You know, after receiving that award, I'm sure you yeah, got a lot we, more we, interest. Yeah, we do. We did see an up. Then that was, I guess, probably. Although that does get some uh, public media, I, I suppose some other stuff is probably like I was in a, a, a magazine called sort of Women's Day and 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 well, Women's Weekly and things like that, and and or on Gardening Australia, so some sort of TV shows that actually tend to reach reach a lot of people that um, maybe. I guess reach larger audiences sometimes, which is maybe mm -hmm. shouldn't how <laughs> shouldn't be how it is. You know, the science science media um, should be getting out there a bit more. But I think every little thing that we do, whether it's a radio interview or whether it's a, it's a, a scientific recognition, it, it helps increase the profile of the project. And you know, we do need support to keep the project going. Sure. Uh, and so that's I guess you know it's it's another thing to help us. Um, demonstrate that Frog ID is awesome and it's making a difference <laughs> and that it does need to keep going. Very good. Well, I will uh, put some information in the show notes about, about Frog ID too, because I'm sure 
my listening audience will be uh, interested in hearing and learning more about it. But now I want to kind of switch over a little bit and talk about the the frog. Uh, I want to call it the survey work, if you will, or uh, research field research that you've done with frogs uh, in Australia and other countries. So I, I know you've been to Cambodia and Vietnam and I think China. Uh, and uh, you want to talk about how, how did that happen? Does that happen uh, as a result of your position or where you're at now? Or uh, No, so it, it happened during my PhD, I guess. So mm-hmm. I did my PhD up in North Queensland in Australia at James Cook University. And at the time I was trying to look for kind of what do I do after this? Uh, and sort of during my PhD, the global amphibian assessment came out. So in 2004, and and that was highlighting, I guess, the, the global plight of amphibians, but also highlighting some of the areas that were black holes in terms of our knowledge. And I kind of decided that I thought I could make more of a difference to frog conservation and amphibian conservation by helping in in these areas. Uh, So there became an opportunity for me to move to Cambodia after my PhD and work for Conservation International, which is uh, an NGO, a wildlife conservation NGO. Mm -hmm. So I packed up my bags after my PhD and I moved to Cambodia. And there I started to do expeditions in search of frogs in remote forested places and these places are under enormous threat deforestation is is occurring rapidly so there is this real race against time to try and figure out what species are there and prioritize the species and places that need our help and so working with amazing groups of students and and biologists across uh, particularly it's it's become Vietnam um, in in the last more than a decade um, we've been able to, to sort of figure out where a lot of species are, get more information on them, and also discover and scientifically dis- or scientifically discover and describe um, a bunch of amazing new frog species, which helps them be considered in conservation decisions and has changed our understanding of where biodiversity is located in terms of frogs. Very good. Uh, at least in scientific communities, it's hard to, to push this out to the public. But at least in scientific communities, you, you can generate some interest and some buzz in, in this sort of thing. It's like, oh, wow, look at this. There's all these things that are in these remote areas that are coming out now. And that, I'm sure that that leads to other collaborations and, and things like that. It's got to be sort of a uh, something that just keeps feeding upon itself. Is that is that safe to say? Uh, yeah. And I mean, think, uh, you know, there's for a while there, there was not much um, – amphibian research by nationals in in Vietnam and Cambodia and particularly in Vietnam though now since I started working there back in the day there's an amazing cohort of emerging and and very well established now frog biologists um, taxonomists conservationists working to save their biodiversity so there's a lot more opportunity for me to I guess step back work a little more in Australia and just do what I can uh-huh. to support my amazing colleagues in these places that and, you know, unfortunately I, I'm not able to get into the field in Vietnam now. I was really hoping to get back last year. We're all a little bit stuck. Uh, but they are able to still get out there, find these amazing frogs. And, and it, tr- it truly is a race against time. And so the work that they're doing is so important. I uh, was able to go to Vietnam in 2019. And I went to Cook uh, Phong Na- uh, National Park south of Hanoi and uh, spent four or five days and 
the frog diversity was pretty amazing. It, it was interesting to me that uh, I, I just knew so, so little about what was there in terms of diver- frog diversity, and it just kind of knocked, knocked me over a little bit to, uh, between the ground frogs and the tree frogs and the big ones and the little ones. It was just a, kind of an amazing experience. I, I, I'd love to go back again sometime and, and uh, see some more. And I guess uh, I wanted to ask you about a, a specific frog that you, you worked to describe. Uh, the Limnonectes uh, is the genus, and they referred to them as uh, fanged frogs. Can you talk a little bit about those? Oh, Limnonectes are a, a pretty fantastic frog. Uh, if you just sort of saw them from a distance, they're just a kind of a, a boring brown kind of frog that that usually tends to hang out in mud or the slow flowing water. Uh, but if you see a male, like females look like a, a normal, again, kind of using the term boring a bit, um, which no frog is boring. But uh, males have these or, enormous... Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, you know, they're your stereotypical brown ground frog, you know, with no toe pads and things and just kind of in the mud. Great camouflage. Uh, but the males have these enormous heads that are usually very muscly, lots of mus- like muscles for jaw attachment. And they have uh, these projections of, of their bone in their mouth that, that look like teeth or fangs, these two sort of fang things that stick up. Uh, and they use these to engage in male combat Uh, and they're also much larger than the females which is weird in the frog world but that's because they fight with each other so there's a pressure for them to be big Uh, and so they're quite poorly known frogs and a lot of them look quite similar Um, not all of them have as such a big head. There are some ridiculously large-headed limnonectes. And they also have really strange reproductive behaviour that we're just starting to learn. Some of them build nests and actually lay eggs that then turn into tadpoles that don't feed. They just sort of live around in this little tiny nest and males defend it. Others carry tadpoles on their backs. They do all sorts of crazy things. So for being kind of a, a brown, not as attractive as you could be frog, they are absolutely amazing in their behavior and their adaptations and, and their fangs are really cool too. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I, well, I saw a couple of pictures of those and, and I was wondering if that wasn't some sort, if that was connected with some sort of uh, nesting behavior uh, because it put me in mind of a uh, South American species that I see when I go to Peru called Boana Boans, which is a gla- or gladiator tree frog, which you don't get the teeth, but they get these bony spikes on their mm on their, their hands, so to speak, and then you use those to defend these these elaborate basin nests that they build. And uh, so I thought, wow, uh, it sounds like familiar behavior. The males are defending yeah. the nest from other males, you know. I think I think it's um, I guess a little bit of a up in the air for a lot of those species because we just don't really know much about their behaviour. There's been very little work done um, on the behaviour of a lot of these fascinating frogs. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, either I guess calling site defence or you are most likely correct. Or you know, there certainly are species that make nests and that that do at least attend them, if if not defend mm-hmm. them. Um, so there are some really weird mating strategies and defense systems going on there and combat. You know, a lot of people just think of frogs as these things that, you know, they can't hurt you at all. And that, and you know that, you know, that they don't have any defense against any predators or eat each other. Um, but then you get into these examples of, you know, frogs that will actually, you know, bite each other and you see scars on the back of some of these frogs. So 
some frogs that have those spikes on their thumbs and things and will actually, yeah, I've seen some with huge scars and I've heard stories of, of some Australian frogs actually disemboweling each other when they're engaging in male combat, which is pretty oh, wow. pretty awesome. And, you know, some of the, the Asian moustache frogs or moustache uh-huh. toads, yeah. um, the Vibrissophora or, or Leptobrachium that they used to be well, they are called now to break him. Um, they have these like dog collar black spikes all along their upper lip during the breeding season that they fight with as well. So it's just there are like some serious, you know, don't don't I guess uh, overlook the ability of frogs to be weaponized sometimes. <laughs> you haven't been chomped by a limnonectes, have you? I haven't. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I guess they don't. Then I probably would have been chomped if if they were in the habit of doing it. Mm. But um, I think that they save that for each other. Uh, well, you you brought up uh, Leptobrachium too, which is one of my favorite frog genuses. I think those are just amazing frogs. That the the uh, bicolor or bi what do you call it? Uh, the eye is two different colors. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I've seen them in a couple countries, uh, including Vietnam and. It's fun to see those things on the trail ahead, you know, maybe 20 feet away. You shine your light and you see them. They're kind of perched up in a, in a form or, a, you know, they're kind of like a little tripod and they're, they're looking down the trail and they're just waiting for something to come along. And as soon as you walk up to them, they hunker down and they put their, they smush their, their face down in the ground and you no longer can see that eye, which is usually black and then maybe red or some other brilliant black and yellow or something color combination and that kind of disappears when they when they hunker down i guess that's part of their defensive posture is to oh don't look at my eyes now <laughs> yeah it's it's really annoying if you want to get a photo of their cool colored eyeballs <laughs> yes it is very annoying so uh, i resolve the next time i next time i'm in leptobrachium country i'm going to make sure i bring my long lens <laughs> yeah, you need to, yeah, you flashlight do. And, and try to try to get them, you know, in situ before they they fall over on me. So uh, very very cool species. Uh, can you talk? Uh, for me, this you know, just to see these new species and find new frogs is such an adventure. Is there is that always a uh, is that an aspect of your research in Cambodia and, and Vietnam and so forth? Uh, it, you like the adventure of that? I know you spend some time in some rough country. Uh, did, do you enjoy that? I, I do. Um, I also find it miserable depending on the conditions. You know, I think <laughs> field work is, you know, I'm, as I'm getting older and, um, you know, cl- Climbing mountains has never been my thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm scared of heights. Uh, you know, I climbing waterfalls and things in the middle of nowhere and, and being terrified and things. You know, I'm, I'm luckier that I work with an amazing group of people because if, if I didn't, you know, then, then it would be much harder. But you form these amazing friendships and I've been working with some of my colleagues, particularly in, you know, Vietnam and Cambodia for, for more than a decade. And so we're more like family after spending all that time in the field than, than friends. Um, you know, I, I, do, I do it for the frogs. I would not climb mountains for fun. And we've been in, in instances where we've been sort of hiking, you know, up a mountain in search of frogs and we're only a couple of hundred metres from the summit of a mountain and, and people are like, why didn't you just climb to the top? I'm like, 
why? Like there was no frogs up there. There's no water. Like I don't see any point in in going through misery if it's not for frogs. Um, but you know, you know, you're alive in the field, right? And and then yeah. you you appreciate it's it's some of the best moments of your life and some of the worst moments of your life. But it's it's really up and down. Whereas when I'm in the office, you know, it's kind of Groundhog Day, isn't it? You know, um, uh. everything's kind of comfortable and and okay. You know, um, but if, after you spend some time in the field, you know, you, and you get back and you've you've got a bed and you can just walk to you know a bathroom like it's amazing you know you appreciate all these luxuries that we we take um, for granted um, but yeah look I, I, I love going to new places I love seeing new forests I love seeing new frogs uh, I love I love working with some of the people that I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to, to work with um, but yeah definitely seeing seeing frogs that I've never seen before is is always super exciting as I think it is is any herpetologist or, or any um, mm-hmm. amphibian and reptile nerd you know seeing something new, new is fantastic but then you know definitely seeing something that is new to science um and and knowing it because you don't always know it obviously sometimes you know one of the frogs that we've described was pink and yellow with spikes on its back and at that point when we first saw it we were like uh that thing is not known you know but in in other instances it's a small brown frog and i'm not sure what it is until we look at its genetics well now you have to tell me what the pink frog with the spikes was It's the thorny tree frog, Crisixilis lumerius, uh, and they're actually kind of a brown colour during the the day, uh, but at night males um, in particular uh, are kind of like a pale-ish pink and yellow, which is pretty spectacular, and, and they uh, are only on the top of this sort of mountain range in central Vietnam, and they breed in tree holes filled with water because there's no it's so steep uh, that there's no actual streams or ponds or anything like that, and the only water is within the tree hole themselves ah i know that i know those kinds okay very cool uh the uh, i notice a lot of frog species in uh southeast asia have the ixalis suffix what does ixalis mean you, you know is that a oh man is that something you've, like frog you've done or? me in like uh, I actually don't know offhand. Oh, I'm going to have to like improve my, okay. is it Greek or Latin? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So, but you, you are right. A lot of the, um, it's sort of the tree frogs. Um, so yeah, Grisixilis, um, it, definitely. So I'm, I'm going to have to look up my, uh, actually I've taken it home. I'm at work today and I've taken some of my books home because I was working, I am working from home a fair bit. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, as, as are so many people these days. Uh, I noticed that you also have a couple frogs named after you. That's got to feel that's got to feel cool, doesn't it? Oh, it's a, it is it is a real honor. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and the two frogs are from Vietnam, um, and so from my Vietnamese. Um, uh, led by my Vietnamese colleagues, which, yeah, which is really, really special, amazing. So, um, yeah, and, I'm, and it's I'm special because you have these great relationships with these people. You you fostered these working relationships with them. That's that's, that's well, really yeah. I, th- I think I'm it, just right? lucky in that I work with some really <laughs> awesome people. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's a massive honor. Cool. And, and you also got to name a frog after your mom, right? Correct. I did. I did. Yeah, my colleagues and I discovered uh, a big apple green flying frog, so in the genus Racophorus. Racophorus. Um, Helena was what we called it. So Helen's flying frog. And that was uh, in the honor of my mother. So when we found it, um, I actually didn't know it. It took a while, like a few years for us to actually really realize that that it was an undescribed species. At first I confused it with Racophorus keo, the black web flying frog, which is 
very similar. Um, and it wasn't until I was actually in the field and saw the black web flying frog that I was like, wait a minute, if you're that, what's that? Um, and then and then we sort of ran the genetics and we looked at it a bit closer and realised it was something distinct and much more narrowly distributed. Um, and around that time, my mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer uh, mm. and I, I knew that it would make her happy. And even though it's kind of, it's a mushy thing, you know, I asked my colleagues, would they mind if, if we did name it after my mother? Mm-hmm. And I, I also thought that it kind of sounded, you know, Rakafros Helena. It sounds, you know, regal enough for for That's a good. big, beautiful frog like it is. And so we named it after my mum, uh, Helen. And she fought ovarian cancer for uh, a very long time. And throughout going to chemo and, and radiation and surgery, she would she had uh, Helen's flying frog as her screensaver. Helen's flying frog on Aww. her phone. She had the cover that was Helen's flying frog. Every single doctor and nurse that ever met her knew that she had a frog named after her. <laughs> and um, so that kind of became, you know, she had pictures of it up um, in her room and things. So she it, it made her happy. And so I'm very grateful to my colleagues for allowing yeah. me to to give her that honor because she you know she really did appreciate it it was really awesome how lovely how lovely that is wonderful uh we get we get through covid we we don't ever go back to normal i don't think um but we we go on to something else um what do you what's you have some plans for the future are you going to do some more field work um what are you thinking about yeah, so I, I see a lot of frog ID in the future, uh, which is great. That makes me happy. But also field work more immediately in, in New South Wales and hopefully other parts of Australia. Uh, and then hopefully resuming to some field work in, in Vietnam, um, hopefully maybe the Solomon Islands, uh, anywhere where I can be helpful. So, uh, yeah, very much looking forward to resuming some of the sort of more expedition style stuff both in Australia and and overseas if if at all possible well now that the frog ID has maybe given you some uh, places to go look for frogs that uh, you didn't have before you've got some things to track down maybe yeah, we've heard some really weird noises that we think are frogs in some places. So we're keen to go check them out. And, and we're also just interested in exploring some strange frog accents in, in some places. Uh, so, yeah, lots of lots of great places to go. And we've also got a lot of ongoing work in the lab on, on different frogs. So we're not related to frog ID, but we rediscovered a, a population of a frog thought to be extinct in this area. And it was elsewhere, oh. but, but extinct from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. And so we've been monitoring these these frogs, a Brulong frog for a while. So we spent a bit of time up there and also looking for a frog that has not been seen since the 70s, the peppered tree frog. So a lot of field work uh, on on national parks and and private properties looking for frogs and trying to to help, I guess, rediscover and and monitor threatened frog species. Very good. Have you ever been, have you been to the States? I have, and I, I did have a, another trip to the States planned last year that I had to put off. I have uh-huh. some of my best friends in the States, uh-huh. uh, and so I was planning on coming and hanging out. And as an Australian, I lose my mind when I see salamanders, and that they're, they're like the oh. best. So um, I do spend time lifting up uh, logs and, and almost crying with joy when I see your other awesome amphibians. Okay, so you've, you've come over here and found some salamanders then? I have indeed. Yeah, I, I probably 
half a dozen times or so. Uh, I've been lucky enough to explore uh, one particular trip with uh, the amazing biologist Ronald Outig, who uh, Mm -hmm. is particularly a tadpole expert, but also knows, you know, everything. It was amazing. He'd drive me around and and just kind of say, all right, now get out. I found a salamander there 30 years ago and you might find one too. You know, it was, (laughs) it was, it was an amazing, it was an amazing trip and, you know, there they were. Um, So I got to see a a lot of diversity, but yeah, a, a lot of good friends in the States and you've got a lot of amazing amphibians. So, I am definitely keen to get back at good. some stage when I can. Yeah, good. Maybe you can go to Appalachia and see some of, of the diversity there, or have you done that already? Only touched on it. So, yeah, okay. I'm I'm very keen to to get back uh, and see some more stuff. I've, I've really not seen that many herps uh, at all in the States, so lots more to find. I think we should have some sort of exchange program because a lot of us are keen to get where you're at and, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's 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 kind of hard to manage sometimes, but it would be fun to to just sort of tr- trade places for a couple of weeks, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, yeah, and I uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, depending on the temperature and the rain, uh, I have a unisexual ampistomatid salamander that lives about forty five minutes from my house, and it's sort of the early late winter ritual uh, to go out. There's still snow on the ground. We go out and poke around and see if we can't turn up a couple of these things and, you know, voucher them, of course, using Herp Mapper. But uh, that's one of the uh, early, you know, we can't, can't wait until the weather gets warm. Uh, so we try wow. to get out and see what we can. So I'm very lucky to live within uh, close proximity to this weird little salamander that doesn't really need a male salamander in order to uh, awesome. reproduce. So it's very cool. Anyway, uh, well, I want to, ta- I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, Oh, I, I no, no, no. I, there was one other thing I was curious about before we go, uh, and that is the uh, presence of chytrid fungus in, in Australia. Can you talk a little bit about that? So the amphibian chytrid fungus is in Australia, definitely, and it's it's been here for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, we basically pretty much every place that, that is tested, um, so far with the exception of, of some of the really, um, I guess, sort of savanna tropics, like around the Northern Territory um, I don't believe it's been detected yet, but certainly along most of Australia, it is present and an ongoing threat to many of our frog species. So it's something that we have had some um, certainly declines to probable extinction. Um, you know, it's been the driver of extinctions in, in Australia and Australian frogs, and is certainly an ongoing threat to some of our threatened species. There has been some good news in, in some populations appear to be bouncing back. Uh, for example, you know, being present again in streams that they hadn't been seen in decades. So there, there is some hope, but it also is, is still an ongoing thing that Australia's frogs are just having to cope with um, and some of them need some management you know intervention yeah. we've got captive breeding populations and things like that mm-hmm. in order to help them get through it so we're still learning a lot about it as as a, you know around the world right. um, and it's and its impact but yeah it definitely is is an ongoing threat to Australia's frogs okay I kind of figured that but I, I wanted to ask just to make sure and are are you involved with any of that, or is your museum involved with that project, or as a project? We we do uh, we do monitor the, for example, the population of burrowing frogs for the amphibian chytrid fungus, and, and we do sample other frogs. So uh, we we have a, a lab here, in and the team does some some monitoring for for that fungus. Yeah. Okay. Very good. 
Well, and, and so many people are, are dealing with this. It's just amazing. Uh, but there, there, there is some hope for some species. I know uh, some some species seems to be seem to bounce back or or not even be affected by it at all, which which is good, I guess. It could be a lot worse. Uh, but I, listen, I want to thank you for coming on the show and, and talking to me. Um, it's just been I follow you on Facebook and I follow you on Twitter, and, and I really enjoy seeing all your, your your posts about Frog ID and all these cool places you get to go. And that's just been fun to vicariously live through that. And it's great to finally get a chance to just sit down and talk to you for a little bit. Thank you. You too. It's been lovely chatting with you. And um, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of part of this. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I, I do promise I will put Frog ID on my phone when I go over to Australia. Sweet. So. <laughs> uh, I expect it. If I detect that you're in Australia and not recording frogs, <laughs> I will have words. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thanks once more. Thank you. That's it for episode 33. Jody, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so much fun talking to you about frogs and uh, frogs ID and your field work. Uh, I had the best time and I could talk about frogs for hours. And sometimes I do. And folks, please see the show notes for more on frog ID and social media links, etc., etc. And once again, I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters who helped to keep the lights on and the show moving forward. And if you would like to contribute a few bucks, you can visit patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. Now, before I go, I want to remind you that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much And you can also join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and to interact with me and some of my guests and other cool herpsters. Uh, it's one of my happy fun places. I'm also on Twitter at, you guessed it, at so much pingle, And, of course, you can contact me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>